This is a Rooster Teeth production. October 31st, 1994. American Eagle Flight 4184, an ATR-72 with 68 people on board, has taken off from Indianapolis, Indiana, and is in a holding pattern at 10,000 feet while waiting to land at Chicago's O'Hare Airport. The weather is cold and wet, which is slowing down operations at the airport. The crew is initially optimistic that their hold won't take too long, but ends up circling for 45 minutes. Without warning, the control column whips to the right and the aircraft is in a stall. The pilots try to pull the plane to wings level and out of the stall, but they run out of time. The plane collides with the ground, killing all on board. What happened seemingly out of the blue that caused the plane to lose control? Could the crew have done anything to save the plane? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, Gus. We're back with another episode. Before we get into that, this week, I'm going to remember, hey, you should follow us on social media <laughs> at Black Box Down Pod on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, don't forget, you can, if you would like to directly support the creation of this podcast, you can check out blackboxdownpod.com. You can subscribe for, I believe it's $2.99 a month. You can get an ad-free episodes, you get them early, and you can continue listening in whatever podcast player you already use. Yeah. And if you use Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you probably already see a button in those apps where you can do it directly yeah. in there. You don't even have to go anywhere. Just look and it'll be like, bloop, bloop. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but if you do have questions, we have like some, uh, 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 an FAQ on blackboxdownpod.com. Okay. American Eagle Flight 4184 was a passenger flight. It was officially operating as Simmons Airlines Flight 4184. Simmons. So, you know, we've talked, we've kind of talked about this before where Regional carriers are often rebranded other carriers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, like it might be like Republic Airways or something. And then they yeah. just put like American Eagle or United Express or Delta Connection, I think is the Delta one. Like they're just mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like basically contracted out airlines. So anyway, this was technically Simmons Airlines, but operating as American Eagle. If you're a passenger, you can't tell. Or if you're a fan of Red versus Blue, that would be Gus's <laughs> that, character. That was my character, or is my character <laughs> is in Red, character. Red versus Blue, uh, Simmons. No relation. <laughs> so like I said, it was flying from Indianapolis to Chicago on October 31st, 1994. The flight was crewed by Captain Orlando Aguilar, who was 29 years old, with 7,867 flight hours. And First Officer Jeffrey Gagliano, who was 30, with 5,176 flight hours. And like we said, like well, like I said earlier, the aircraft was an ATR-72, which is, it's like a high wing turboprop. So it's like, the, that means it's, the wing is high, like at the top of the fuselage, and it's got two propellers, one on each side uh, of the fuselage. Okay. So normally, like, this is like a regional plane. Uh, you, you would not fly this on a huge long flight, which is why, you know, this is flying from Indianapolis to Chicago, not a long flight. And then these, these planes are not huge. Typically, they seat between 72 and 78 passengers. It's kind of an interesting looking plane. I just looked it up. Yeah. um, We may have talked about incidents involving this kind of plane in the past. I believe we did a TransAsia flight. And I want to say that one was also an ATR-72. Okay. TransAsia uh, flight 235. That was also an ATR-72. Anyway, uh, the plane was fairly new. It was only about nine months old. Had 1,352 hours and 1,671 cycles on it. And there were two flight attendants and 64 passengers on board. So the captain and the first officer reported for duty at 10.39 a.m. in Chicago and made a flight to Indianapolis, landing at 12.42. Mm-hmm. When they arrived at Indianapolis, they received a company-prepared flight plan and weather package for the return flight to Chicago. And this flight, 4184, was scheduled to depart Indianapolis at 2.10, 
but they were delayed 42 minutes because of a change in traffic flow caused by deteriorating weather conditions. And then at 2.53, they were cleared to start their engines and they were told they could expect a little bit of holding in the air, but did not specify a reason as to why. And if you've flown in this part of the country, especially like late fall and winter, you know this kind of stuff happens. Uh, Weather can deteriorate quickly. If you've ever had a connecting flight in Chicago, you know at this time of year, Mm -hmm. there's a good chance Mm -hmm. you're going to get delayed. Yeah. So anyway, finally at 2.55, flight 4184 was cleared for takeoff and the crew began climbing to their cruising altitude of 16,000 feet. At 3.09, a pilot flying a beach baron reported that there was some light icing at 12,000 feet and said it was trace rime. And that's just describes the type of ice. I believe there's three different types of ice oh. that can form on aircraft. Trace rime, it's, um, it's, it, it's typically kind of a rough ice, and trace means there's just very little of it. Oh, oh, not like traces in three. No, no, no. <laughs> T-R-A-C-E. <laughs> I believe the different kinds of ice are rime, clear, and mix, which mixes just a combination of the other two. Okay. So the report occurred on the same frequency that Flight 4184 was on, and so it was not repeated to the crew. At 3.11, the crew changed frequencies and contacted the Boone section controller and said they were at 16,000 feet, but they had discretion down to 10,000 feet and they were on their way down now. The crew began their descent and during the descent, the airframe de-icing system was activated. At 3.18, flight 4184 leveled off at 10,000 feet and shortly after this, they were placed into a hold and they were told to expect further clearance at 3.30. So they were, initially they're told, you know, you'll get more clearance in what? 12 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Captain acknowledges this. Then a minute later, the Boone controller revised the expected further clearance time to 345. So the delays are already starting. Uh, it's not that bad. Was it like another 27 minutes or so? I guess it's a long time for such a short flight. Yeah. Like, do they just circle around at this point? Yeah, exactly. There's like circle patterns that they fly in the yeah. sky. In the, that's a holding pattern. So it's just like, all right, we got to wait. You know, they already were delayed on you know, before taking off. They're mm-hmm. delayed coming in. If you, you know, if you're on the plane, you're probably annoyed. You're like, oh my God, I'm going to miss my connection. I'm going to have to get another mm-hmm. flight. It's that kind of thing. If you've traveled, you've probably been in this situation before. At 325, the crew entered the holding pattern and slowed down to 175 knots. No point in going fast if you're just circling, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. All right, we're, I mean, we're just going to be here. Just, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, the goal isn't to do like 30 laps and then land. It's like, <laughs> you're just going to wait. Yeah. The de-icing system was also deactivated at this time. The cockpit voice recorder begins at 328 with the sound of music playing in the first officer's headset, um, with a flight attendant in the cockpit discussing both flight and non-flight related information with the pilots. At 333, the captain said, man, this thing gets a high deck angle in these turns. We're just wallowing in the air right now. And their angle of attack at this time was five degrees. And the first officer asked, you want flaps 15? And we talked about angle of attack in our last episode. Mm -hmm. It's the angle of the wing relative to uh, the wind. The captain replied saying, I'll be ready for that stall procedure here pretty soon. And the first officer chuckled. The captain then said, do you want to kick them in? It'll bring the nose down. And the first officer replied with, sure. The flaps were then moved to 15 degrees position and the angle of attack decreased to zero degrees. So, you know, they're going slow. The Mm -hmm. nose is pitching up a bit. And then, you know, that's why they go ahead and put the flaps down to kind of level, level the nose out. And the captain's joking, you know, they're going slow, putting their flaps out, Mm -hmm. making these turns like, no, you know, we're we're going to stall. That's the, the, the joke he's making right there. At 3.38, the Boone controller issued a new expected further clearance time of 4 o'clock. And this was acknowledged by the captain. So the time's just getting pushed further and further. Yeah, how much fuel do they have for 
This is a short flight. It's not a concern for them yet. You know, uh-huh. we've we've talked about this before in a previous episode. You know, when the fuel starts to get low, then you know they'll worry about diverting mm-hmm. to a different airport, or they'll let air traffic know, like, hey, we're going to need to land, or we're going to need to divert. So they're, yeah. they're they're not even talking about it yet. So it's not okay, not an issue. The crew went back to their conversation with the flight attendant, and at three forty one, the sound of a single tone similar to the caution alert chime was recorded. The airframe de-icing systems were then activated again. At 3.42, the flight attendant left the cockpit and the crew received information from company dispatch via the ACARS. And we've talked about this before. It's like a very rudimentary um, communication system they can use. Mm -hmm. The first officer transmitted the updated expected clearance time and fuel data via the ACARS, but did not acknowledge the message sent by dispatch. At 3.48, the first officer commented that the 15 flaps were much nicer. And seven seconds later, one of the pilots said, I'm showing some ice now. Shortly after this, the captain commented, I'm sure that once they let us out of the hold and forget the flaps are down, we'll get the overspeed. Meaning that he's expecting that they're going to get overspeed warnings for the flaps. Because you can only go so fast with your flaps down. If you start going too fast, then the plane warns you. Is that because it's like bad for them? Yeah. um, Typically, flaps are only rated to be deployed up to a certain speed. Beyond that, the wind might be too strong and cause structural Mm. damage. So that's what they're commenting on now. Like, okay. you know, once we get out of this holding pattern, you know, and once we start speeding up, we're going to get that overspeed warning because of our flaps. Then at this point, the captain got up to use the restroom in the back of the plane. But when he got back there, the restroom was in use. So he told the first officer via the intercom system that he would return shortly. I do, I do want to make a quick side note here. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mentioned that in the cockpit voice recorder that you can hear the sound of music playing in the first officer's headset. I'm not sure entirely what the source of the music was. But there are old navigation systems on planes that we've talked about, I think, in the before. Have we ever, we've talked about NDBs or non-directional beacons. Yes, but you, I might need a refresher. <laughs> it's just like a, a broadcast signal. Uh, it's not very precise that, you know, pilots can use to help figure out where they are. It's not, okay. it's not really widely used at all anymore. You know, obviously with GPS, there's a lot more advanced systems now. It's not really used. But... The frequency that NDBs broadcast on does have some overlap with AM radio stations. So you can use the equipment to receive NDB signals in the plane. You could theoretically tune it to an AM station and listen to AM stations while you're flying. And is that what he was doing? I don't know if that's what he was doing. I just thought like, (laughs) oh, this would be a good good segue to talk about how ridiculous some of this stuff is. (laughs) But anyway, that's not, that's not necessarily, I'm not saying that's what he was doing. I'm just saying... A little bit of weird trivia for you. Okay. Anyway, eventually the captain returns from the restroom at 354 and asks the first officer for a status update regarding company and air traffic control communications. There was no verbal inquiry by the captain about the status of icing conditions or the aircraft de-ice systems. At 355, the first officer said, we still got ice, but there was no verbal acknowledgement from the captain on this. The cockpit voice recorder indicated there were no further discussions regarding icing conditions. The ice is so important to right now because... Why? It's cold and wet, so they want to make sure that they're not building up ice. Uh, If ice accumulates on the wing or control surfaces, Mm -hmm. it can disrupt airflow and cause problems. Like on the instrument readings? Well, no, it could, if it disrupts the airflow over the wing, it could cause a stall. Oh. Wings operate, they need that smooth flow of air around them in order to generate lift. And if ice accumulates, the airflow isn't smooth. Which, oh, because it's not always even. It's like can right. be bumpy and okay. Yeah, so that's that's the danger they're worried about. That's why aircraft have you know anti-icing, de-icing mm-hmm. systems. You you de-ice a plane if it's icy before you take off. You don't want ice on it. 
So a minute later, the Boone controller contacted the flight and instructed them to descend to 8,000 feet, and they should expect further clearance in about 10 minutes. So progress, but still, you know, delaying. Mm -hmm. The airplane started descending with the autopilot engaged in vertical speed and heading select modes. And while the airplane was in a 15-degree right-wing-down attitude, the flap overspeed warning was recorded on the cockpit voice recorder. And the captain made a comment saying, I knew we'd do that. And the first officer said, I was trying to keep it at 180. Uh, the flaps overspeed chimes at 185 knots. So they were probably going about 185. The flaps were then retracted and the angle of attack and pitch attitude began to increase. Remember, that's what was happening before. Uh-huh. At 3.57 and 33 seconds, the angle of attack increased through five degrees. The aileron started to deflect to a right wing down position and then rapidly deflected to a 13.43 degree right wing down the maximum deflection that the ailerons can move to is 14 degrees. So it pretty much went maximum right wing down deflection. Mm-hmm. The autopilot was then disconnected and the airplane rolled rapidly to the right with the pitch and angle of attack angles decreasing. So and, and what did of these did they do? Like, or is this just happening? It just happened. Okay. Like the, the control column just whipped to the right, you know, started banking pretty much maximum aileron deflection to the right and then began mm-hmm. pitching down. Oh. The airplane reached 77 degrees right wing down before it began to roll back to the left. 77, that's pretty, so it's like, yeah, that's a lot. Close to vertical, right? Like 90 degrees would be vertical. Yeah. Or, yeah, sideways, you know, it's a way to think about it. So it's pretty much there. At 3.57 and 38 seconds, five seconds after the first aileron deflection, the plane was rolling back to the left. The aileron deflected rapidly to the right wing down position again. So did they pull it back? Right, so they were fighting it. Kind of uh-huh. got it almost uh, level, but then five seconds later, it whipped back to the right again. Oh, no. And this caused the plane to roll to the right at a rate in excess of 50 degrees per second. So that's like a crazy fast roll. 50 degrees per second. So you're saying they're like, it just goes. Whoosh. Yeah. So okay. at, that, at that speed, it would go, you know, sideways in less than two seconds. Because in two seconds, you'd reach 100 yeah. degrees. The plane rolled all the way through 180 degrees and back. It did a barrel roll? Uh, yeah, it did a complete full roll oh at 357 and 45 seconds. The captain said, all right, man. And the first officer relieved some back pressure on the control column. Then the elevator and angle of attack decreased rapidly and the ailerons immediately deflected to left wing down and then stabilized at one degree right wing down and the airplane rolled to 144 degrees right wing down. So... They're beyond vertical. Again, they're starting to invert because 180 degrees would be upside down and they rolled to 144 degrees. They rolled forward? No, the, uh, sideways still. Side, so, side, so they okay. did, like you said, they rolled one time and they began rolling again to the right mm-hmm. and they reached 144. So almost inverted because they were at 144 degrees. Inverted? You mean like upside, the plane was upside yeah. down? Yeah. Because 180 degrees would be upside down and they yeah. were at 144. Oh my God. Yeah, and then they're speeding up. The airspeed at this point had increased to 260 knots. Are they decreasing altitude? Well, yeah. I mean, they're, 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 they're definitely losing altitude as okay. well. So they begin, you know, they begin fighting it. They begin rolling it back to the left. The pitch attitude, however, decreased to 60 degrees nose down. So they're definitely going, you know, they're definitely losing altitude. And as they're descending through 6,000 feet, the captain used over 22 pounds of force to pull the elevator to a three-degree nose up position which made the plane's pitch stop at 73 degrees nose down. Uh, and they're still speeding up. Their speed's now hitting uh, 300 knots. And they still have their flaps? They had pulled up. them up. Yeah, they, they had retracted them. Okay. At 3.57 and 53 seconds, the captain started to relieve some back pressure, and the first officer's control column exceeded 22 pounds of back pressure. 
The captain made the statement nice and easy. The acceleration increased to over 3G, and the ground proximity warning system started sounding terrain. The cockpit voice recorder then recorded an expletive from the first officer and then a loud crunching sound. The last recorded data on the flight data recorder occurred at an altitude of 1,682 feet, indicated an airspeed of 375 knots, a pitch attitude of 38 degrees nose down, with a 5 degree nose up elevator position, and vertical acceleration of 3.6 G. The airplane impacted a wet soybean field, partially inverted in a nose down, left wing low attitude, destroying the airplane and killing everyone on board. So they hit really hard. Yeah. A very violent crash. This sounds crazy, Gus. Yeah, it's it sounds is, they would like it sounds like a nightmare. Like that sounds horrifying to have uh, have gone through. Yeah. And it all happened really fast, right? Like yeah. that was I mean, yeah, they were descending, they started a turn, then all of a sudden like the, the control column whipped out of their hands. From the moment it first whipped out, how long was it to crash? From the time the captain walked back in to the cockpit to the time that they crashed was probably two and a half or three minutes from the time that, you know, the control column whipped mm-hmm. out of their hand to the time that they hit the ground was probably less than a minute, oh. maybe 30 seconds or so. It's hard to say the flight data recorder, you know, like I said, mm-hmm. the last bit of information it had, they were still at 1,800 feet or so. The recorders weren't as precise back then. So it's, it's hard to say, but it was definitely under a minute. Yes, that's so scary. It's like completely normal. And then a minute later. Yeah. So the investigation was done by the NTSB. And when they were investigating the crash site, they found that the horizontal part of the tail, the horizontal stabilizer, and the outboard portion of both wings had separated in flight. And the separation was caused by excessive aerodynamic loads. So they were, you know, this was so violent that it started ripping the plane apart. Yeah. Well, it's not meant for barrel rolls, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. They were definitely exceeding things that the plane was was certified for and it wasn't i'm not saying that the pilots exceeded it uh-huh. like this crash yeah. whatever had happened had put such stress on the plane that it started to break up while still in flight did they have any initially did they have any idea what happened um well i mean the first thing they're going to look at uh-huh. you know it's going to be icing you know that's the one thing that we've been talking about here repeatedly yeah. when the ntsb looks at the flight data recorder they see that the de-icing system was turned on during the descent to ten thousand feet and then turned off just before the holding pattern at Lucid. And according to American Eagle procedures, turning off the system is only appropriate for flight outside of actual or potential icing systems. So, oh, yeah, so they, they, shouldn't. they shouldn't have turned it off. However, they did turn the de-icing system back on at 340, but the NTSB found that on two occasions during the holding pattern, there was evidence of small drag increases that were probably the result of ice on the airplane, like ice collecting on the airplane. Why would they turn it off? I don't know. I can't tell you that. Mm. That was just what they did. Want a new credit card, but not sure how to choose? You do not need to apply for the first offer you see in the mail. Credit Karma can help you zero in on the right option for you and apply with more confidence. Credit Karma uses your credit profile to show you offers that are tailored to your financial situation. Credit Karma partners with a wide range of card issuers, so you can be sure that you are exploring all sorts of options. Best of all, Credit Karma uses your credit data to show you your chances of approval before you even apply, helping you apply with even more confidence. Comparing cards on Credit Karma is 100% free, does not affect your credit scores. So if you're ready to find the card that's uh, right for you, head to Credit Karma, check out your personalized mix of offers today. You can either go to creditkarma.com or use the Credit Karma app to find the card that's right for you. 
Credit Karma is going to help you compare reward options. You f- make sure you find a card that fits your lifestyle, helping you earn miles or cash back uh, for spending, you know, you're going to do anyway. So like I said, head over to creditkarma.com or use a Credit Karma app. Again, that's creditkarma.com. So when they notice the, you know, this evidence of drag increasing, they find that the first drag increase occurred about 333 just before the flaps were extended. And the second increase happened about 352, six minutes before the upset. It's likely that the airplane was intermittently encountering areas of large, supercooled drizzle and raindrops while it was holding, which contributed to the formation of a ridge of ice on the upper surface of the wing, aft of the wing de-ice boots in front of the ailerons. So there are several different ways that de-icing systems can operate on a plane. Uh This particular plane, they have de-icing boots on the leading edge of the wing, so like on the very front part of the wing. And Mm -hmm. what these do is it's like a little rubberized leading edge on the wing. And every so often, they inflate with air and then deflate. And then inflate and deflate. So that if ice forms on it, the inflation cracks it and then the ice just okay. falls off and then it deflates. Like I'm sure you could probably picture yeah. it in your head. Like you have a, a balloon and then it's you, you know, you let ice form on it, and then you inflate the balloon a little more, the ice is all gonna crack and then fall yeah. off. And and this is along you said the front part of the wing? Right. And that somehow it like it inflate how like how far back does it extend? I'm just trying to visualize like it's not very far. But all they have to do is if you think about it. In theory, all you have to do is really kind of weaken the ice, and then if you and shatter then, it, then the yeah. wind will knock it all off. Yeah. In theory. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it's just weird to me, because I, when you say de-icing, I, just, I imagined it was like a heat-based method. Right. And I think some, that's what a lot of people think of. Like, we've talked about bleed air from the engines going out mm-hmm. and being blown over the wings, which is hot air. Yeah. You would think about maybe you would... In your mind, you might think like, oh, there's probably like a heater coil or something in the wings that melts yeah. the ice. It's just a rubber boot <laughs> that inflates and deflates. That is, that's weird. I mean, that's, it's actually clever. Like, yeah. I, I wouldn't have thought of that. Like, my first instinct on designing a de-icer, not that I'm an engineer. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's, why, that's why I made sure to bring it up. It's, a, it's yeah. an interesting design. Um, however, that being said, you know, we're already, they're already noticing here that it seems like they're, they're theorizing that ice could have formed on the top of the wing behind that de-icing boot in front of the ailerons. So it's like what you were, what you were kind of getting at. Like, how effective is that? Because uh-huh. it doesn't go back far enough. Right. It, oh. So when the flight crew retracted the flap, and, and, and so I'm gonna, we're going to dig a little more into that in just a bit. I'm just okay. trying to kind of set the stage right now. So when the flight crew retracted the flaps, the autopilot increased the pitch attitude to maintain a preset vertical speed for the descent. And as the airplane pitch nose up, and the angle of attack increased through five degrees, the airflow in the area of the right aileron began to separate from the wing upper surface because of the ice ridge. And if you remember, like like I said earlier, this is a high wing airplane. So even under normal circumstances, even with a regular you know, low wing airplane, if you're in the front in the cockpit and you're trying to look out the window at the back, it's hard to see. Mm-hmm. If the plane's a high wing like this, there's no way they can see the top of the wing from the cockpit. Like the yeah. top of the wing is at the very top of the fuselage. And that's where this ice is starting to form. And this is where it's starting to cause the airflow to separate because of this ice. Like it's the airflow isn't smooth over the top of the wing anymore. And then it, one more question about the de-icer. Yeah. So when it's on, is it constantly inflating and then deflating and then inflating? So it's like, does that make sense? Yeah, I see what you're saying. It's not constant. It's I don't know what the interval is, but it's every uh-huh. every so often. It's not like it's nonstop inflating and deflating i think it's um yeah i wish i could tell you how long i don't know exactly how long i've seen videos of the system 
operating. And uh-huh. it seems to me it's like, I don't know, maybe every 45 seconds or so, 30 seconds. Okay. It's like smooth and then it inflates a bit and then it deflates and then reinflates and it has like these ridges on it. Could we post a video on social of one of these things? Yeah, that's not a bad idea. I guess if you give us a follow at Black Box Down Pod on Twitter and Instagram, I will post the, the video I'm watching right now <laughs> so you can see it there. <laughs> So as the angle of attack continued to increase, the airflow separation in the area of the right aileron also increased, causing a reversal of the right aileron hinge moment characteristics. Although the right aileron hinge moment reversal caused the ailerons to deflect rapidly to a right wing down position, the angle of attack was not sufficient to activate the stall warning system prior to the aileron deflection. The autopilot could not control the aileron deflection rate, which exceeded that allowed by the autopilot, so the autopilot disconnected. So what's happening is instead of the air flowing smoothly and tightly over the wing, the air is starting to separate a little bit. And then it's creating these little like currents and eddies of air, which force the aileron to like flap up or to like hinge up, which is what causes, you know, the the wing to move. And then it moves so violently that the autopilot disconnects and they, you know, the airflow wasn't sufficiently disrupted to activate the stall warning. That's why the stall warning never went off. Okay. Even though the airflow is being disrupted over the wing. There's enough air to keep it flying, but it's also flying wonky. Yeah, there is. And if, if the wing was normal and there wasn't ice on it, yeah, totally fine. But, you know, things are being disrupted. So mm-hmm. that's why uh, they're having this problem. There must be some really chunky, thick ice, right? I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be. They, remember, this, these are very <laughs> precise things. Uh, very, huh. The wings have to be designed very precisely for airflow to move over them. And in this case, you know, it, they can take a certain amount of ice. But yeah, over time, it's not good. And honestly, saying they can take a certain amount of ice is bad. Any ice is really bad for the shape of a wing. Yeah, I just, I guess I never thought about like the shape and how important it is that it's completely consistent and flat. If the ice formed comp- 100% as one layer instead of in weird bumps and stuff, would, would that be better? Uh, that's subjective. I would okay. say probably but it's still not good and that what you're describing there that's clear ice remember i talked about earlier the different oh. kinds bumpy ice like that that's rye ice oh well not i, I good because I, I was curious about what the different types are. There, there you go you just you just kind of uh led us to the the explanation and then mix of course is both yeah so you know at this point the ntsb speculating about this position of ice on the wing so mm-hmm. and how you know these de-icing systems worked, uh, these boots is what they call them. So the NTSB did some icing tests that resulted in ice ridges just aft of the active portion of the de-ice boots and subsequent autopilot and aileron behavior comparable to that noted in the flight data recorder for the accident. So the tests show that freezing drizzle ice shapes cause trailing edge flow separation and subsequent aileron hinge moment reversals. So the NTSB concludes that the ATR 42 and 72 can experience ice-induced aileron hinge moment reversals, autopilot disconnects, and rapid uncommanded rolls if they're operated in near-freezing temperatures and water droplets the size typical of freezing drizzle are present. So, obviously, not good. Yeah. This is kind of dumb, but how do they test ice? Can they, like, how do they... Like, what is that test like? Do they... I believe in, uh, you know, for these tests, they had uh-huh. to contact, you know meteorologists and people who specialize in weather systems, there's a lot of very specific meteorological conditions that I don't really uh, understand that go into this accident. But, Mm -hmm. you know, they talked about these super cool large droplets, I believe is what they called them. Uh That's like, that is really kind of a culprit here where it's wet 
but then it hits the wing and then freezes. Yeah, like when you try and touch your tongue to a metal pole. Similar, yeah. And even though they call them large droplets, they said that they're roughly the size of like the width of a human hair. But it's that's just like the classification they use for them. I'm not a pilot. I'm definitely not a meteorologist. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but I'm trying to convey like what I did read here in the report. So because the ailerons on the ATR-72 are not hydraulically actuated, a pilot would have to manually overcome the rapid increase in force produced by a hinge moment reversal. So how much force is that? Right. So in this accident, the pilots would have had to use about 60 pounds of force on the control wheel to maintain a wing's level attitude when the hinge moment reversal happened. And it happens in a split second. Instantly, right. This amount of force is in compliance with federal aviation regulations for temporary control wheel forces. However, the safety board concluded that rapid uncommanded rolls and sudden multiple onsets of even 60 pounds of control wheel force without any form of warning or pilot training for such unusual events would, and most likely did in this case, preclude the flight crew from affecting a timely recovery. Yeah. Yeah. If all of a sudden 60 pounds of like it jerks. Right. It would just like jerk out of your hands and then you have to pull on it. So I, I, I want to say that ultimately it, it even got up to the point where it needed even more force to stabilize uh, by the time, uh-huh. you know, they crashed and that it, it had increased up to 250 pounds of force. Oh my God. That's not, I don't even know if that's possible. Right. Right. Um, it, mean, beca- it becomes, for me, certainly. <laughs> yeah, for me, for me neither. But yeah, initially, you know, definitely even 60 pounds of force, like that's a significant amount of force just to hold it at wings level. Yeah. So the NTSB recognizes that the risk of another accident resulting from an uncommanded aileron excursion has been reduced by addition of extended de-ice boots, but they're still concerned whether, even with these improvements, the airplane can be controlled under all naturally occurring combinations of conditions of liquid drop size and content, temperature, airplane configuration, load factor, speed, and time of exposure. Moreover, the safety board found that ATR's post-accident brochure entitled ATR Icing Conditions Procedures still does not adequately address or clearly represent the exact nature of the ATR ice-induced aileron hinge moment reversal. Additionally, other airplane models don't have a similar accident history like this one. So they're, they're saying they're, the information they get on icing doesn't properly convey how crazy that is? Yeah, and it doesn't really, how can I say it? It doesn't really understand that this kind of accident can happen where the de-icing boot is working properly and you have your uh-huh. de-icing system on, but these super cool droplets can kind of form and make like, make, I don't know what to call it, sneaky ice, you know, that like <laughs> forms in a zone where nothing can break it. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's behind the boot in front of the aileron because the ailerons are moving, you know, uh-huh. when you're, when you're banking. So, you know, it's possible you could crack ice there on that hinge, but you know, there's that portion of the wing between the de-icing boot and the aileron where it's just going to form. Yeah. So the NTSB says that one possible reason that other airplanes don't have an accident history like this is that other model aircraft use hydraulically powered ailerons, smaller mechanical ailerons with larger hydraulically powered spoilers, or different balance hinge moment control devices to provide adequate roll control with less propensity for aileron hinge moment reversal. So if they had hydraulics like some other planes mm-hmm. do, they don't have to give 60 pounds of force. It's not you know, the human muscle that's moving it is this hydraulic system. So they're saying, you know, maybe other planes don't have this problem because they have hydraulic ailerons and it's not a big deal. And I know we've talked about this before, but like the hydraulic system is similar, like in a car for like power steering. Power steering is the perfect analogy. Yeah. You're trying, if you've ever tried to turn your car without power steering or whenever, like say the engine is off, it's incredibly hard because like you turn, it's like trying to, 
turn the actual wheels with your arms right versus like you turn the wheel and it a mechanism then tells the wheels to turn right exactly i think power steering is the perfect analogy for this if you've never driven a car without power steering man you're in luck <laughs> it's <laughs> it's not great so the ntsb understands that the atr is considering design changes to the lateral control system for current and future atr airplanes that are expected to reduce the susceptibility to flow separation-induced aileron, hinge moment reversals, and or uncommanded aileron deflections. The NTSB concluded that such design changes, if effective, would reduce the need to rely on the changes to flight operations and pilot training that have already been mandated to ensure the safety of flight. So manufacturer of the planes just, at this point, saying they're considering making design changes to their planes and future planes that could alleviate these kinds of incidents. So... There were also previous incidents that involved ATR 42s and 72s that were similar to this accident. I was going to ask that okay. was my next question. <laughs> I'm surprised like, you didn't you ask. You mentioned history. I was like, but we've only talked about this one. <laughs> we're, we're, we're not going to talk in depth about some of these. I just I, I feel compelled to mention some other similar incidents. There was one in 1988 in Wisconsin where ice had formed on the upper surface of the wings after the ice boots that also had aileron hinge moments. There was one in 1993 in New Jersey that also involved icing and another a year later in Massachusetts. So these are all crashes. Well, the report describes them as incidents. So I'm going to say that uh, these were probably not like crashes. These were not, okay. you know, loss of life. Uh, these are probably temporary loss of control that, you know, uh, was then regained. Okay. And like I said, this is the, these incidents involved ATR 42s and 72s. They're very similar. The ATR-42 is an earlier version of this plane that looks, if you were looking at it from the outside, looks very, very similar. This particular accident we're talking about now, though, is the ATR-72. Uh, however, they have similar de-icing boot systems, so mm -hmm. that's why they kind of get lumped in together. Okay. So due to these incidents, ATR, the manufacturer, had mm -hmm. sufficient knowledge to conclude that the airplanes had a significant recurring airworthiness problem in icing conditions outside the icing certification envelope. And although ATR knew that icing conditions encountered in these incidents were outside the icing certification envelope, ATR also knew that airplanes were being flown more than occasionally into such conditions and that neither the vortex generators nor the operational information it had disseminated had corrected the problem or prevented recurrence. So therefore, the safety board concludes that ATR's failure to disseminate adequate warnings and guidance to operators about the adverse characteristics of and techniques to recover from ice-induced aileron hinge moment reversals and ATR's failure to develop additional airplane modifications led directly to this accident. All that's to say, the NTSB is pretty much blaming the manufacturer for this, uh, saying that there were uh -huh. previous incidents, they know that this was a recurring problem, and yet they didn't do anything to fix the plane, or they didn't disseminate information about these seemingly recurring problems. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the findings here. Flight 4184 encountered a mixture of rime and clear airframe icing in super cool clouds and drizzle uh, slash raindrops. Those, remember, those are both icing we talked about, rime and clear. Pilot reports of icing conditions based on current icing severity definitions may often be misleading to pilots, especially to pilots in aircraft that may be more vulnerable to the effects of icing than other aircraft. So remember, I mentioned there was that other pilot who reported some icing conditions. Mm -hmm. Pyreps are very important to aviation. You know, someone who's just flown through an area can tell other pilots what's going on there. ATR-72 ice-induced aileron hinge moment reversals, autopilot disconnects, and rapid uncommanded rolls could occur if the airplanes are operated in near freezing temperatures and water droplet median volume diameter typical of freezing drizzle. At the initiation of the aileron hinge moment reversal affecting flight 4184, 
the 60 pounds of force on a control wheel required to maintain a wings level attitude were within the standards set forth by the Federal Aviation Regulations. However, rapid, uncommanded rolls and sudden onset of 60 pounds of control wheel force without any warning to the pilot or training for such unusual events would most likely preclude a flight crew from making timely recovery. So again, they're saying, yeah, you know, 60 pounds of force is within the regulations, but... Not like this. Yeah, this was... <laughs> this was extreme. Uh, this was unexpected. Prior to this accident, ATR recognized the reason for the aileron behavior in the previous incidents and determined that ice accumulation behind the de-ice boots at an angle of attack sufficient to cause an airflow separation would cause the ailerons to become unstable. Therefore, ATR had sufficient basis to modify the airplane and or provide operators and pilots with adequate detailed information regarding this phenomenon. So again, saying ATR knew this was a thing that was happening. Yeah. ATR failed to disseminate adequate warnings and guidance to operators about the adverse characteristics of and techniques to recover from ice-induced haleron hinge moment reversal events. And ATR failed to develop additional airplane modifications, which led directly to this accident. Again, just saying ATR's inaction led directly to the accident is the takeaway there. Because there were no PIREPs provided to the Boone sector controller by other pilots, and because the crew of Flight 4184 did not provide a PIREP of icing conditions at the Lucid intersection, it was reasonable for the controller to conclude there were no significant weather events in that area, and the crew of Flight 4184 was not experiencing any problems that would have warranted precautionary action by the controller. So kind of absolving the controller of any wrongdoing there. Okay. Controller didn't know that there was ice in that area. Neither the flight attendant's presence in the cockpit nor the flight crew's conversations with her contributed to the accident. However, a sterile cockpit environment would probably have reduced flight crew distractions and could have promoted an appropriate level of flight crew awareness for the conditions in which the airplane was being operated. We didn't really get into this, but the conversations between like the flight attendants and the pilots was like, it wasn't necessarily all professional about what was going on, you know, with oh. the flight per se. It was like, there were some other side tangential conversations that were going on. We didn't really dig into that because it, you know, like we say, see here in the report, it didn't directly contribute it, to this it accident. It. Right. It's just, it's just something of note uh, that I guess, you know, they want to make a, a note of. They have to say like, well, for the record, you should only be talking about landing the plane. Right. Although both crew members of Flight 4184 were certified flight instructors, this was probably the first time they'd experienced such unexpected and excessive roll and pitch attitudes in the ATR-72. If the operators had been required to conduct unusual attitude training, the knowledge from this training might have assisted the flight crew in its recovery efforts and might have prompted the captain to provide useful information to the first officer to facilitate a timely recovery of the airplane. Again, this just saying what an unusual situation this was. Mm-hmm. So the NTSB determines that the probable causes of this accident were the loss of control attributed to a sudden, unexpected aileron hinge moment reversal that occurred after a ridge of ice accreted beyond the de-ice boots because ATR failed to completely disclose to operators and incorporate in the ATR-72 airplane flight manual, flight crew operating manual, and flight crew training programs adequate information concerning previously known effects of freezing precipitation on the stability and control characteristics autopilot, and related operational procedures when the ATR-72 was operating in such conditions. Again, blaming ATR for not disseminating this information. Mm -hmm. The French Directorate General for Civil Aviation's inadequate oversight of ATR-42 and 72 and its failure to take the necessary corrective action to ensure continued airworthiness in icing conditions. Uh, so that's like blaming the agency who oversaw, because ATR is a French company, so blaming the uh, French overseers and the aviation organization over there for lack of oversight on the ATR 42 and 72. Because I think, if I remember right, the FAA kind of took 
the French agency's word for it and just like kind of like rubber stamped the airworthiness in the United States. Mm-hmm. The French Directorate General for Civil Aviation's failure to provide the FAA with timely airworthiness information developed from previous ATR incidents and accidents in icing conditions as specified under the Bilateral Airworthiness Agreement and Annex 8 of the International Civil Aviation Organization. So that's kind of speaking of what I just said, that bilateral airworthiness agreement, where it's like, if it's airworthy there, it's going to be airworthy here. So mm-hmm. there just should have been more communication about these problems. Yeah, okay. Contributing to this accident were the FAA's failure to ensure that aircraft icing certification requirements, operational requirements for flight into icing conditions, and FAA published aircraft icing information adequately accounted for the hazards that can result from flight in freezing rain and other icing conditions not specified in the code of federal regulations. So there's now they're saying FAA should be, I guess, monitoring and, and disseminating information and having higher requirements? Well, it's they, they should have... If I, my takeaway here is that they should have looked more into it before, like accepting this bilateral airworthiness agreement. Okay. The second uh, point here was the FAA's inadequate oversight of the ATR 42 and 72 to ensure continued airworthiness in icing conditions. I think that's mainly just kind of like, hey, even if, you know, because of this bilateral airworthiness, we got to do a little more checking on our side. And of course, a couple of recommendations here. Direct principal operations inspectors to ensure that all 14 Code of Federal Regulations Part 121 air carriers require their dispatchers to provide all pertinent information, including airmen's meteorological information and center weather advisories to flight crews for pre-flight and flight planning purposes. So just make sure pilots have all the weather available to them. Mm -hmm. 14 Code Federal Regulation Part 121, that's just like commercial, uh, like air transport, like a plane that you would buy a ticket to fly on. That's a Part 121 carrier. Encourage principal operations inspectors and operators to reemphasize to pilots that hazardous in-flight weather advisory service is a source of timely weather information and should be used whenever they are operating in or near areas of potentially hazardous weather conditions. Revise the icing criteria published in 14 Code of Federal Regulations Part 23 and 25 in light of both recent research into aircraft ice accretion under varying conditions of liquid water content, drop size distribution and temperature, and recent developments in both the design and use of aircraft. So basically this is what we're talking about, like update the regulations regarding icing. Also expand Appendix C icing certification envelope to include freezing drizzle, freezing rain, and mixed water ice crystal conditions as necessary. So again, that's what you want to see. You're like, re-evaluate the icing envelope, re-evaluate the regulations surrounding icing. Revise the icing certification testing regulation to ensure that airplanes are properly tested for all conditions in which they are authorized to operate or otherwise shown to be capable of safe flight into such conditions. If safe operations cannot be demonstrated by the manufacturer, operational limitations should be imposed to prohibit flight in such conditions, and flight crews should be provided with the means to positively determine when they are in icing conditions that exceed the limits for aircraft certification. So again, just more stringent uh, certification. Mm -hmm. Develop an icing certification test procedure similar to the tailplane icing pushover test to determine the susceptibility of airplanes to aileron hinge moment reversals in the clean and iced wing conditions. More testing. Mm-hmm. Encourage ATR to test the newly developed lateral control system design changes and upon verification of the improved or corrected hinge moment reversal uncommanded aileron deflection problems, require these design changes on all new and existing ATR airplanes. Establish policies and procedures to ensure that all pertinent information is received, including the manufacturer's analysis of incidents, accidents, or other airworthiness issues from the exporting country's airworthiness authority so the FAA can monitor and ensure the continued airworthiness of airplanes 
certified under the bilateral airworthiness agreement. This is that thing I kind of keep circling back to. FAA mm-hmm. needs to be able to monitor despite these bilateral agreements. And the last one here, evaluate the need to require a sterile cockpit environment for airplanes in holding in such weather conditions as icing convective activity regardless of altitude. So extend that sterile cockpit, you know, when a situation like this could occur. Yeah. After this accident, American Eagle and other American-based operators move their ATRs out of northern hubs and move them to southern and Caribbean hubs to reduce potential future icing problems. So you actually don't huh. see these airplanes flying in like cold environments where icing is possible anymore. They've really been moved closer to the equator so that they can avoid any potential icing on them. Wow. I mean, I guess that's the only solution since the plane's already made. Right. Yeah. What are you going to do? They already have them. They're operating them. Yeah. So that's really all you can do is, you know, move them to more to warmer, more temperate uh, environments. I have a question. You know how they turned off the de-icing? Yeah. Would that have stopped this incident? I I don't think so. Because you didn't, it wasn't mentioned really like. They should not have turned it off. But in uh the end, uh, the way that this ice formed, it wouldn't have mattered. Even if they had left it on the whole time, it would have still accumulated. Yeah. And that's really ultimately, you know, the the lesson learned here is that the way that ice forms, like we had to rethink Mm -hmm. the way that we think about ice on a plane and the ways to combat it. But yeah, uh, that's American 4184. We'll be back next week with another episode, but I do want to remind you to give us a follow on social media. I'll post that video we, we talked about mm-hmm. uh, at Black Box Down Pod. And if you got any questions, send them to us on social media or email us uh, to blackboxdownpod at gmail.com. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Tell your friends about this show. Tell us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>